This is our unit on diversity, culture, diversity, and inclusion for our module on people in business. Today, we'll be looking at why culture is important to organizations. So we need to have a fundamental understanding of what culture is and how it relates to organizations. We'll also try to understand why diversity is important for organizations in our global world. We also have a closer look at women, that is gender and minorities in organizations. And we'll look at some current employment experiences of a socially defined minority. We'll also explore the equal opportunities approach to diversity in organizations, look at the management of diversity and some of the implications of diversity and managing diversity for organizations. So let's start with an understanding of culture. Now, if I were to ask you what culture is, you might come up with different answers. It could be related to the language. It could be related to the clothes that a certain group of people wear or certain types of practices. But culture, as you may not fully realize, is very complex. There are a number of ways of defining culture. And so for our purposes, we'll use the following definition of culture as a learned, shared, compelling, interrelated set of symbols, meanings, whose meanings provide a set of orientations for members of a society. Here's another one specifically learned norms based on attitudes, values, and beliefs. So the second one is a fairly simple and straightforward definition. So we need to understand that culture is a set of beliefs and values that are shared by members of a given group. These beliefs and values lead to patterns of behavior that are acquired and transmitted from one member of that group to another. These beliefs, values, and behaviors are important in terms of identity, and it makes a group unique and sets it apart from others. Now, culture is generally handed down from one generation to the next and has a certain level of permeance. So culture is something that is long-lasting while cultures do change and evolve, this tends to happen very slowly. This is in part because culture is transferred and handed down, and cultural beliefs are hard to change because we learn them at a very early age, and we also learn them as part of the fabric of our society. Culture teaches us between right and wrong, good and bad, and what things are acceptable or not acceptable, what things are expected. So culture is stable over time and very slow to change. Culture creates differences among people and groups. 
because different groups of people will have come to behave in different ways and will have come to have different beliefs about the way the world works and about the way people should behave. Culture, therefore, shapes our view of the world. Many of our actions and thoughts, the way we behave, are influenced by our culture. Culture provides both the framework and the lens that allows us to perceive and understand events. And through that lens, it makes us focus on certain things and tells us what matters and what does not. So you could understand with this sort of generic definition and understanding of culture, that culture is also something that goes on in organizations. Organizations develop culture and ways of behaving and dealing with each other and expectations as well as do nations and ethnic groups. In organizational settings, research, for example, indicates that many cultural differences in factors such as organizational commitment, turnover, the type of role model people respond to best, leadership ideals, and nonverbal behaviors are all part of that culture. Ignoring culture, either consciously or because of a lack of knowledge, will more than likely lead to some issues, some mistakes, missteps, some faux pas, if not actual real blunders and farces. So cultural understanding can distinctly enhance both individual and organizational effectiveness. So let's learn a little bit more about culture. Culture and where it comes from, as we mentioned before, it's generally handed down from generation to generation. Culture is how people interact with each other and giving them a sense of belonging or identity. Some dimensions may or may not correspond with national boundaries or with ethnic group boundaries, um, but oftentimes national boundaries are one way of creating an identity and giving people a sense of belonging. A fear of otherness is another thing that impacts the way culture develops. So otherness can impact people's ideas about migration, immigration, or in-group and out-group behavior and how we create scapegoats and how we respond to people who don't comply with the cultural expectations that we have in our minds. So some things that influence culture are quite obvious. Religion, for example, are fundamental principles and values as well that are associated with some kind of belief in God, or in something supernatural. So Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, even veganism, if you will, are beliefs and value systems that influence the way we behave and the way we think and the way we view the world. Now, the culture in the United Kingdom and US, uh, sorry, United Kingdom society is fairly secular. So even though the Church of England has a really strong influence on the history of the United Kingdom, as does the Catholic Church to some degree, our society has developed to be fairly secular. 
although some Christian principles and values still underpin our laws and our culture. Language is also a fundamental factor of culture and impacts the way people behave and think. The adaption of English for internal and external communication in multinational enterprises and organizations is one example of how culture can infiltrate an organization and may potentially cause certain kinds of issues, power differences, and so on when you have people from different cultures interacting with each other and all speaking a different language, that is, speaking English as a second language. But this is understandable to a certain degree due to globalization. There needed to be some kind of a lingua franca that everybody could use together. Now this may result in other types of issues, for example, uh, for people from English-speaking nations, from Britain, from the United States, from Australia, becoming a bit lazy in trying to understand different cultures. And so you see that people from other nations and cultures have to work a bit harder in order to participate in this global landscape. Education is another huge phenomenon that impacts culture. Different systems of education will have a different impact on people's behaviors and people's beliefs about the world. Uh, the level of literacy in a country and the percentage of the population that is educated will impact culture. Some countries have high performance in certain fields, such as Finland, Japan, South Korea, have high performance in math. History obviously also impacts culture. The development of political and economic systems are influenced by history, different forms of capitalism, even socialism, Eastern countries after the fall of uh, larger socialist regi regimes and communist regimes have had to undergo a great deal of cultural change. Foreign investors also need to understand and respect cultural traditions and practice that are impacted by history. Social systems and the way social societies are organized uh, also impact culture. Some cultural groups may have a more aging population than others. Different cultural groups may have different sizes of families. The number of single people living in their society, uh, about the way the social system is organized, such as caste systems in India can have an impact on people's beliefs and behaviors. The absence of skilled and an educated middle class can also influence culture, but also may be a deterrence to foreign investors in a certain nation. Symbols are also a part of culture. Each culture will have its own symbols and different things, different concepts or objects in a culture will have different sorts of symbolic meaning. Symbols represent something by virtue of association, resemblance or convention. For example, the significance of colors in different cultures and countries. Black, for example, is used for mourning and for funerals in the West, whereas in the Far East and in India, China and Japan, white is the color for mourning. 
Also, symbolism of numbers can be associated with good luck or bad luck, and these are the types of things that might be pertinent when doing certain types of negotiations or setting dates for events. Economic systems also impact culture. An economic system is the way the society organizes ownership and allocation of economic resources. So the so-called pure market economies do not exist. The USA is the closest we can get to a so-called pure market economy. Most economies are a mix of different market systems with uh, laissez-faire markets and with a certain level of government intervention. Political systems are also a huge aspect of culture. These institutions, systems of politics and government have arisen out of experience and history. Often these are linked to political and economic systems. For example, communism is linked to the command economy. Democracy is linked to capitalism. So the relationship between culture and individual behavior may be starting to come clear in your mind. Culture has a huge power in influencing individual behavior when you take into account all of these different aspects of life that influence culture and then influence each one of us as an individual. Culture impacts our values, our beliefs, our attitudes, and our behaviors. As opposed to only values, which are the shoulds, uh, beliefs are how things actually are. So ethical values between good and bad, right and wrong, these are the way we should behave. Those would be like expectations and beliefs are what we actually observe and see how things are. Another individual factor that is impacted by culture is our attitudes. Um, what do we think about others? How do we judge others? How do we judge behavior? Finally, our values, beliefs, and attitudes impact how we behave. The terminal value, for example, of wealth and material goods impacts our beliefs about working hard or how we are going to acquire that wealth, which would be the instrumental value. This leads to a positive view of work and contributes to actually working hard in some cases. But the terminal value of wealth and material goods might also impact your instrumental value of how to acquire that some people might think you should acquire it through thievery or through uh, deception. In any case, the attitude of, that we get from culture leads to behavior of working towards a goal that may be identified by a leader with little challenge to their decisions. So some cultural values would see people following leaders and doing what they're told no matter what. Now we're going to have a look at the cultural iceberg. This is one way of understanding a little bit more about the way culture works. When we think about the cultural iceberg, we can see that there are varying layers of culture. There are uh, views of culture, understandings of other culture, and observable components of culture. So. 
The observable components, I'm going to start with number three, the observable components of culture are visible to both insiders and outsiders. These are cultural elements such as language and nonverbal behavior, artwork, greetings, rituals, and so forth. Rituals are prescribed ceremonies that members perform at certain times. So these are the types of things that if we were to go and visit a different country, these would be observable components of culture that we could see, we could observe people practicing out there in the world. At the next level, you can gain a deeper understanding of other cultures. When you have more casual contact with other cultures, this provides you access to not only the visible behaviors, but also some of the expressed values. Understanding any culture requires access to more of the hidden portions um, or access to the core of culture that may be even harder for people from the culture itself to clearly express. Understanding culture requires observation of the visible parts and exploration of the hidden parts of the cultural iceberg. So some of the hidden parts of the cultural iceberg, this lower level, the third level, has to do with assumptions that people hold within that culture um, about behavior and about the world. And these things are hidden because they really become, through cultural inculcation, through socialization, they become second nature and they become habit and they become, uh, they sort of disappear into our minds and into these maps we have, these schemas we have in our minds of the way things should work. And they only really become visible when something kind of goes wrong in that scheme and we're thinking, wait, something's wrong here, but we don't really know why. And that can cause confusion. So this would be the type of thing that happens when your cultural assumptions are being challenged. So in looking at views of culture, a common view of culture is what we can see and observe is only a small part of what culture is. So this iceberg model of culture shows us how there are the surface things and the deeper things of culture. Just as an iceberg has roughly nine-tenths of its mass hidden under the water, a good portion of culture is hidden from view, especially to outsiders and even to insiders. Insiders just know, but outsiders would have to learn. Like an iceberg, the nature and depth of the values of a culture cannot be ascertained by simply looking at those visible behaviors or those observable aspects of culture. So that's the end of our first part on culture. When we move on to the second part, we're going to look at some more research around culture and understand some more specific aspects of culture. going to continue on with our unit 11 on diversity and culture in organizations and we're gonna go into a bit more depth looking at some classic research about cultural dimensions and organizations we're going to be looking at the work of a person named Gerd Hofstede Hofstede was a 
Dutch researcher, and he developed one of the most often cited classifications of cultures, and these are known as Hofstede's cultural dimensions. The research that Hofstede conducted took place uh, around the beginning of the 1980s. And what they did is they took a survey of over 100,000 employees working for IBM across more than 40 different countries. And they were looking at people's attitudes. So attitudes and sociological differences among nations, Hofstede believed, can be categorized into five cultural dimensions based on the results that Hofstede and his team got from their survey. And this research was quite unique and revolutionary at the time. And so according to Hofstede, any combination of these five dimensions can then sort of characterize a national culture, its distinctiveness and its unique character. And because this work was also carried out in an organizational context, it has been widely accepted that managers can use these cultural dimensions to understand and even potentially predict organizational behavior and management styles, for example. Now, as we know, culture is developed in childhood via the influence of significant others and is then shared with others in society. But, uh, and so culture is not necessarily genetic. Uh, a clear illustration of the force of learning that, for example, Americans show a collective mental programming that is striking to non-Americans. Although even American folk, because of the huge melting pot, come from a wide variety of genetic and cultural sources. So basically, we understand that as a group comes together and as they accept these cultural values, they come to develop these attitudes and behave in certain ways. And this is part of what Hofstede and his team was measuring. So what we're gonna look at now are these five cultural dimensions according to Hofstede. So they include something called power distance, something called uncertainty avoidance, Another dimension of Hofstede's cultural characterizations is called individualism or collectivism. And another dimension is masculinity and femininity. And the fifth dimension is long-term orientation versus short-term orientation. So we're going to look at these five dimensions now in a bit more depth, starting with power distance. So power distance basically explains the extent to which people accept power differences within society. So power distance has to do with the fact that in some cultures, power is in the hands of the few and people accept that. They say, this is the way the world is meant to be. This is the way things are. So power distance also has to do with status 
and with the way people at different levels of the hierarchy in society treat each other and are treated by others and to what extent people accept these differences and this distance and how that those power relations are expressed in their behavior in the culture. So this means that societies, for example, with a very high level of power distance would accept that society is inherently unequal, that subordinates are dependent on those further up in the hierarchy and the people higher up in the hierarchy, uh, their superior power their superiority, their superior uh, responsibility, uh, skills, intelligence, etc., whatever, is accepted and even expected. So there is a clear demarcation in society and everybody knows their place and respects that place and is happy, more or less, to stay in that place. Now, in a society that is lower in power distance, you would have less demarcation and these boundaries of status and power in society would be more blurred. Now, there are some other characteristics we can point out about power distance that you can see in this little table here. Uh, for high power distance or large power distance, you have wide inequalities in society. So there's a big difference between those who have lots of power and status and those who have little power and status. We see organizations then as highly centralized and hierarchical as well as reflecting the society. And you would also see a lot of dependence of the subordinates in the organization on the leader or on people who have more status and more power in the organization, such as supervisors, uh, division heads, team leaders, etc. Now, with a lower power distance or a smaller power distance, you'll have more decentralized organizational structures, flatter structures, and a flatter hierarchy. There would also be uh, differences in the way status in, is understood. So respect is earned through ability and not through position. And there are less clear structures and more blurred boundaries also between these layers of organization. Uh, there are less layers. Um, there would be blurred lines between responsibilities, for example, as well. So some examples of countries or national cultures that tend to have lower power distance are Anglo-Saxon countries like the United States and Northern European countries. Countries that tend to have really high power distance are countries such as India and Japan. In fact, power distance is expressed so strongly through Japanese language that I think I've read there are up to seven different levels of address that is how you speak to another person, seven different levels of how to speak to a person in Japanese. So basically two children speaking to each other would be like at level one, and a child speaking to the president of Japan would have to be using that level seven way of addressing them. And then there are all the layers in between. All right, so that's power distance. So you can understand how power, hierarchy, status, structure, etc 
is in society and in culture and also in organizations. Next, we'll look at the dimension that's called uncertainty avoidance. So this has to do with the extent to which a cultural group is happy to accept risk or to accept uncertainty. So if you are avoiding uncertainty, that means you would measure highly on this dimension of uncertainty avoidance. So high uncertainty avoidance means you're not really happy with uncertainty. You're not really happy with risk. So what this means is that you prefer to kind of control and know what's going on. So you like highly structured situations. These are more desirable. Having plenty of rules, lots of regulations, lots of policies and procedures and things. Uh, Cultures that are like this will have all kinds of stringent rules about the way society is meant to work. Um, there's little tolerance for people demonstrating some kind of difference or deviance in these types of cultures. And you can see this as well in certain organizations. Now, if you are low uncertainty avoidance, then you're much happier to deal with uncertainty. You're much happier to deal with risk. You're also a lot more flexible about rules and about expectations. So in a high uncertainty avoidance culture in an organization, you would see a really stringent adhe adherence to things like rules and structures. There's plenty of high levels of anxiety and emotion if people are being deviant in their behavior. So you'll have highly structured situations and plenty of rules. But on the low end, low uncertainty avoidance would look more like lower organizational structure, would be similar kind of to the power distance idea. No really clear specification is required. You can have more kind of general guidelines rather than rules. Uh, less need for even strong leadership might be understood in these low uncertainty avoidance type cultures. So some examples of countries with little need to avoid uncertainty, so people who are happy with things being kind of vague, are some Asian cultures and Northern European cultures. Now, I would also suggest that the United States is uh, low on uncertainty avoidance because we tend to be innovative or we like to think we are. We tend to kind of be high risk takers as well. Um, but in terms of Asian nations, I think there's some subtlety that we need to um, observe. For example, in Japan, there are very stringent rules about society and they really like things to be done in a specific way. So you would think they would be very high on uncertainty avoidance. But on the other hand, when we look at China and the way Chinese people do negotiations, you'll find that they tend to like to work off of relationships and even almost a gut feeling and are much more vague about the way they make contracts and things like that. 
Um, whereas when Americans would go into China and try to do business with them, they want to like get down to business and set things down in a contract with all kinds of clauses and things like that. So there are some subtle nuances to be taken into account with these cultural dimensions. Next, we'll look at the dimension of individualism versus collectivism. So these are pretty straightforward in understanding. A culture that is highly individualistic tends to focus on things like individual rights, individual responsibility. It sort of holds individuals up as the heroes of society and is much more prone to people kind of doing their own thing, going their own way. Whereas in a collectivist culture, the focus is more on the group and the good of the group, the good of society. So people tend to think and behave more in ways like, oh, if I do this, what sort of impact will that have on my family? Or what sort of impact will this have on my community? Um, whereas in individualistic cultures, I kind of like to think of it as the cowboy culture. So the lone wolf who goes out on his own and does things their own way. Think of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Um, or if you ever enjoyed the film Mulan by Disney, it's a lovely story where you can see some of these ideas of collectivism being expressed in uh, a, a, a childlike portrayal, a, a, something geared towards children portrayal of uh, Chinese community and the expectations put on individuals in that community setting. So if a society is individualistic, you'll have loose and not so tightly regulated social framework. Individuals take responsibility for themselves and for their immediate families, but not necessarily for their extended families. Individual rights and freedoms are put at the core of the way people behave and think. Uh, individuals have rights and freedom, and this is very highly regarded. And we often see people seen as individual as her heroes. So the United States is really highly individualistic. And you see this, it, it, it penetrates our legal system, our, our culture, our ways of thinking, even Hollywood movies. Uh, you'll always see that hero coming out. Whereas more far Asian cultures, such as Chinese culture, Indian culture, Japanese culture, even Middle Eastern cultures tend to be much more collectivistic in their ways of thinking. Now, individual cultures are also characterized by competitiveness and assertiveness. Whereas in a collectivist culture, you have a tight social framework and there's much more focus on group responsibility and about relationships and your relationship to the community rather than your personal individual achievement. Even team achievement, collective achievement is more highly regarded and rewarded in collectivist societies. So in a collectivist society, responsibility extends to that extended family group or that extended team uh, and to groups at work. Individuals are loyal to the group. For example, we, we learned a lot about groups and teamworks from the Japanese way of working in teams, as well as in some other Asian countries.
so that was the look at uncertainty avoidance and individual and collectivism, which you can see on this slide here summarized. Now we're going to move on to the two dimensions of masculinity and femininity and the long-term orientation versus short-term orientation. So with masculinity and femininity, it sounds straightforward, but it's not completely straightforward. So that doesn't mean that in a masculine culture that, um, that men are valued more highly than women or in feminine cultures the other way around. Masculinity and femininity as a cultural dimension is slightly a bit more subtle. So it really kind of taps into some of these aspects of what's expected of men or what's expected of women. So masculine cultures would tend to see conflict and competition as something that is positive and would also value assertiveness, something like the individualistic culture. Um, masculine cultures also look to things like achievement and acquisition of material possessions. So I think this, this acquisition of material possessions is kind of one of the major things that um, reveals this masculine culture versus the feminine culture, the femininity dimension. Now, uh, the femininity dimension has more focus on things like terminal values, such as social relationships, quality of life issues, uh, sensitivity to others, which some might associate more with feminine socialization. So cooperation, negotiation, and compromise are highly valued in these cultures that are more inclined to the dimension of femininity. These things are seen as positive. Correlations between masculine and feminine values and gender roles can also be seen. So there's some correlation between masculine and feminine values and gender roles in individualistic societies. For example, in Japan, you have high masculinity and a low rate of working women in high executive positions. But in contrast, for example, in Iran, um, since the revolution in 1979, there have been greater constraints on women. But Iran has a much lower masculinity rating than many other countries in Europe. So the masculinity-femininity dimension is a bit elusive. But generally, when I look for examples to, to show the masculinity-femininity type uh, dimension. I would look to saying the, the Nordic, the North European countries tend to be exemplary of this femininity dimension because they put this quality of life at the focus and uh, the relationship of, for example, the government to society, right? Now, the masculinity aspect, the conflict, competition, um, the assertiveness and the acquisition of material possessions is something that I would associate very highly with uh, United States culture, for example, but also with some Middle Eastern cultures. So I would assert that Saudi Arabia has a highly masculinized dimension of culture um, because of the behaviors that you see 
uh, people taking and the attitudes that the society has. Um, but then again, there are subtleties that need to be taken into account. Uh, Middle Eastern cultures also place a high value on relationships um, and uh, yeah, just relationships. So anyways, that's masculinity and femininity. Now let's have a look at the short-term versus long-term orientation. Uh, this has to do with sort of how you lead your life and what sorts of attitudes you have about the future. So um, short-term orientation tends to emphasize the presence of so people living in the now. Um, so you have a tendency of people to look for immediate gratification of their needs and sort of living at a fast pace. Um, there's less desire to look back into the past. Um, and so some examples of cultures like this might be in the Philippines, might even be in Pakistan. Um, and there are even some cultures in some African nations where they don't even have a word for the future. So they would tend to live very much in the present. Whereas a long-term orientation tends to kind of plan more to the future and look more to the past to understand uh, their life and their view about the way things are. So there's a lot of forward planning and there's a lot of thrift being highly valued. So caution, uh, frugality, um, Long-term orientation, I would say, you can also see reflected in uh, Chinese culture and the way they, they think about how what they do is going to impact things for a very long time rather than trying to get some kind of immediate results. Um, so Japan, Korea, China are example of, of cultures with more of a long-term orientation. Again, I can speak for my own culture, the United States, we tend to have a much more short-term orientation. This is notable in organizations in the way that American companies want their financial reporting. They do it on a quarterly basis. So they wanna see results every quarter, All right? So those are some ways you can learn to understand these different types of orientations and how they not only pan out in society in general, but also how they pan out in organizations. So that's the end of our second segment on culture and diversity for our module on people and business. In the next section, we're gonna look even further into uh, culture and developing a cultural mindset. we're going to continue on with our unit 11 on diversity and culture in organizations and we're gonna go into a bit more depth looking at some classic research about cultural dimensions and organizations 
We're going to be looking at the work of a person named Gerd Hofstede. Hofstede was a Dutch researcher, and he developed one of the most often cited classifications of cultures, and these are known as Hofstede's cultural dimensions. The research that Hofstede conducted took place uh, around the beginning of the 1980s. And what they did is they took a survey of over 100,000 employees working for IBM across more than 40 different countries. And they were looking at people's attitudes. So attitudes and sociological differences among nations, Hofstede believed, can be categorized into five cultural dimensions based on the results that Hofstede and his team got from their survey. And this research was quite unique and revolutionary at the time. And so according to Hofstede, any combination of these five dimensions can then sort of characterize a national culture its distinctiveness and its unique character. And because this work was also carried out in an organizational context, it has been widely accepted that managers can use these cultural dimensions to understand and even potentially predict organizational behavior and management styles, for example. Now, as we know, culture is developed in childhood via the influence of significant others and is then shared with others in society. But, uh, and so culture is not necessarily genetic. Uh, a clear illustration of the force of learning that, for example, Americans show a collective mental programming that is striking to non-Americans. Although even American folk, because of the huge melting pot, come from a wide variety of genetic and cultural sources. So basically, we understand that as a group comes together and as they accept these cultural values, they come to develop these attitudes and behave in certain ways. And this is part of what Hofstede and his team was measuring. So what we're going to look at now are these five cultural dimensions, according to Hofstede. So they include something called power distance, something called uncertainty avoidance, another dimension of Hofstede's cultural characterizations is called individualism or collectivism, and another dimension is masculinity and femininity, and the fifth dimension is long-term orientation versus short-term orientation. So we're going to look at these five dimensions now in a bit more depth, starting with power distance. So power distance basically explains the extent to which people accept power differences within society. So power distance has to do with the fact that in some cultures, power is in the hands of the few and people accept that. They say, this is the way the world is meant to be. 
this is the way things are. So power distance also has to do with status and with the way people at different levels of the hierarchy in society treat each other and are treated by others and to what extent people accept these differences and this distance and how that those power relations are expressed in their behavior in the culture. So this means that societies, for example, with a very high level of power distance would accept that society is inherently unequal, that subordinates are dependent on those further up in the hierarchy and the people higher up in the hierarchy, uh, their superior power their superiority, their superior uh, responsibility, uh, skills, intelligence, etc., whatever, is accepted and even expected. So there is a clear demarcation in society and everybody knows their place and respects that place and is happy, more or less, to stay in that place. Now, in a society that is lower in power distance, you would have less demarcation and these boundaries of status and power in society would be more blurred. Now, there are some other characteristics we can point out about power distance that you can see in this little table here. Uh, for high power distance or large power distance, you have wide inequalities in society. So there's a big difference between those who have lots of power and status and those who have little power and status. We see organizations then as highly centralized and hierarchical as well as reflecting the society. And you would also see a lot of dependence of the subordinates in the organization on the leader or on people who have more status and more power in the organization, such as supervisors, uh, division heads, team leaders, etc. Now, with a lower power distance or a smaller power distance, you'll have more decentralized organizational structures, flatter structures, and a flatter hierarchy. There would also be uh, differences in the way status in, is understood. So respect is earned through ability and not through position and there are less clear structures and more blurred boundaries also between these layers of organization uh, there are less layers um, there would be blurred lines between responsibilities for example as well so some examples of countries or national cultures that tend to have lower power distance are Anglo-Saxon countries like the United States and Northern European countries. Countries that tend to have really high power distance are countries such as India and Japan. In fact, power distance is expressed so strongly through Japanese language that I think I've read there are up to seven different levels of address that is how you speak to another person, seven different levels of how to speak to a person in Japanese. So basically two children speaking to each other would be like at level one, and a child speaking to the president of Japan would have to be using that level seven way of addressing them. And then there are all the layers in between. 
All right, so that's power distance. So you can understand how power, hierarchy, status, structure, etc., is in society and in culture and also in organizations. Next, we'll look at the dimension that's called uncertainty avoidance. So this has to do with the extent to which a cultural group is happy to accept risk or to accept uncertainty. So if you are avoiding uncertainty, that means you would measure highly on this dimension of uncertainty avoidance. So high uncertainty avoidance means you're not really happy with uncertainty. You're not really happy with risk. So what this means is that you prefer to kind of control and know what's going on. So you like highly structured situations. These are more desirable. Having plenty of rules, lots of regulations, lots of policies and procedures and things. Uh, cultures that are like this will have all kinds of stringent rules about the way society is meant to work. Um, there's little tolerance for people demonstrating some kind of difference or deviance in these types of cultures. And you can see this as well in certain organizations. Now, if you are low uncertainty avoidance, then you're much happier to deal with uncertainty. You're much happier to deal with risk. You're also a lot more flexible about rules and about expectations. So in a high uncertainty avoidance culture in an organization, you would see a really stringent adhe adherence to things like rules and structures. There's plenty of high levels of anxiety and emotion if people are being deviant in their behavior. So you'll have highly structured situations and plenty of rules. But on the low end, low uncertainty avoidance would look more like lower organizational structure, would be similar kind of to the power distance idea. No really clear specification is required. You can have more kind of general guidelines rather than rules. Uh, less need for even strong leadership might be understood in these low uncertainty avoidance type cultures. So some examples of countries with little need to avoid uncertainty, so people who are happy with things being kind of vague, are some Asian cultures and Northern European cultures. Now, I would also suggest that the United States is uh, low on uncertainty avoidance because we tend to be innovative or we like to think we are. We tend to kind of be high risk takers as well. Um, but in terms of Asian nations, I think there's some subtlety that we need to um, observe. For example, in Japan, there are very stringent rules about society and they really like things to be done in a specific way. So you would think they would be very high on uncertainty avoidance. But on the other hand, when we look at China and the way Chinese people do negotiations, you'll find that they tend to like to work off of relationships and even almost a gut feeling and are much more vague about the way they make contracts and things like that. 
Um, whereas when Americans would go into China and try to do business with them, they want to like get down to business and set things down in a contract with all kinds of clauses and things like that. So there are some subtle nuances to be taken into account with these cultural dimensions. Next, we'll look at the dimension of individualism versus collectivism. So these are pretty straightforward in understanding. A culture that is highly individualistic tends to focus on things like individual rights, individual responsibility. It sort of holds individuals up as the heroes of society and is much more prone to people kind of doing their own thing, going their own way. Whereas in a collectivist culture, the focus is more on the group and the good of the group, the good of society. So people tend to think and behave more in ways like, oh, if I do this, what sort of impact will that have on my family? Or what sort of impact will this have on my community? Um, whereas in individualistic cultures, I kind of like to think of it as the cowboy culture. So the lone wolf who goes out on his own and does things their own way. Think of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Um, or if you ever enjoyed the film Mulan by Disney, it's a lovely story where you can see some of these ideas of collectivism being expressed in uh, a, a, a childlike portrayal, a, a, something geared towards children portrayal of uh, Chinese community and the expectations put on individuals in that community setting. So if a society is individualistic, you'll have loose and not so tightly regulated social framework. Individuals take responsibility for themselves and for their immediate families, but not necessarily for their extended families. Individual rights and freedoms are put at the core of the way people behave and think. Uh, individuals have rights and freedom and this is very highly regarded and we often see people seen as individual as her heroes. So the United States is really highly individualistic and you see this, it, it, it penetrates our legal system, our, our culture, our ways of thinking, even Hollywood movies. Uh, you'll always see that hero coming out. Whereas more far Asian cultures, such as Chinese culture, Indian culture, Japanese culture, even Middle Eastern cultures tend to be much more collectivistic in their ways of thinking. Now, individual cultures are also characterized by competitiveness and assertiveness. Whereas in a collectivist culture, you have a tight social framework and there's much more focus on group responsibility and about relationships and your relationship to the community rather than your personal individual achievement. Even team achievement, collective achievement is more highly regarded and rewarded in collectivist societies. So in a collectivist society, responsibility extends to that extended family group or that extended team uh, and to groups at work. Individuals are loyal to the group for example, we, we learned a lot about groups and teamworks from the Japanese way of working in teams, as well as in some other Asian countries. 
So that was the look at uncertainty avoidance and individual and collectivism, which you can see on this slide here summarized. Now we're gonna move on to the two dimensions of masculinity and femininity and the long-term orientation versus short-term orientation. So with masculinity and femininity, it sounds straightforward, but it's not completely straightforward. So that doesn't mean that in a masculine culture that, um, that men are valued more highly than women or in feminine cultures the other way around. Masculinity and femininity as a cultural dimension is slightly a bit more subtle. So it really kind of taps into some of these aspects of what's expected of men or what's expected of women. So masculine cultures would tend to see conflict and competition as something that is positive and would also value assertiveness, something like the individualistic culture. Um, masculine cultures also look to things like achievement and acquisition of material possessions. So I think this, this acquisition of material possessions is kind of one of the major things that um, reveals this masculine culture versus the feminine culture, the femininity dimension. Now, uh, the femininity dimension has more focus on things like terminal values, such as social relationships, quality of life issues, uh, sensitivity to others, which some might associate more with feminine socialization. So cooperation, negotiation, and compromise are highly valued in these cultures that are more inclined to the dimension of femininity. These things are seen as positive. Correlations between masculine and feminine values and gender roles can also be seen. So there's some correlation between masculine and feminine values and gender roles in individualistic societies. For example, in Japan, you have high masculinity and a low rate of working women in high executive positions. But in contrast, for example, in Iran, um, since the revolution in 1979, there have been greater constraints on women. But Iran has a much lower masculinity rating than many other countries in Europe. So the masculinity-femininity dimension is a bit elusive. But generally, when I look for examples to, to show the masculinity-femininity type uh, dimension. I would look to saying the, the Nordic, the North European countries tend to be exemplary of this femininity dimension because they put this quality of life at the focus and uh, the relationship of, for example, the government to society, right? Now, the masculinity aspect, the conflict, competition, um, the assertiveness and the acquisition of material possessions is something that I would associate very highly with uh, United States culture, for example, but also with some Middle Eastern cultures. So I would assert that Saudi Arabia has a highly masculinized dimension of culture um, because of the behaviors that you see 
uh, people taking and the attitudes that the society has. Um, but then again, there are subtleties that need to be taken into account. Uh, Middle Eastern cultures also place a high value on relationships um, and uh, yeah, just relationships. So anyways, that's masculinity and femininity. Now let's have a look at the short-term versus long-term orientation. Uh, this has to do with sort of how you lead your life and what sorts of attitudes you have about the future. So um, short-term orientation tends to emphasize the presence, so people living in the now. Um, so you have a tendency of people to look for immediate gratification of their needs and sort of living at a fast pace. Um, there's less desire to look back into the past. Um, and so some examples of cultures like this might be in the Philippines, might even be in Pakistan. Um, and there are even some cultures in some African nations where they don't even have a word for the future. So they would tend to live very much in the present. Whereas a long-term orientation tends to kind of plan more to the future and look more to the past to understand uh, their life and their view about the way things are. So there's a lot of forward planning and there's a lot of thrift being highly valued. So caution, uh, frugality, um, Long-term orientation, I would say, you can also see reflected in uh, Chinese culture and the way they, they think about how what they do is going to impact things for a very long time rather than trying to get some kind of immediate results. Um, so Japan, Korea, China are example of, of cultures with more of a long-term orientation. Again, I can speak for my own culture, the United States, we tend to have a much more short-term orientation. This is notable in organizations in the way that American companies want their financial reporting. They do it on a quarterly basis. So they want to see results every quarter. All right, so those are some ways you can learn to understand these different types of orientations and how they not only pan out in society in general, but also how they pan out in organizations. So that's the end of our second segment on culture and diversity for our module on people in business. In the next section, we're gonna look even further into uh, culture and developing a cultural mindset. Now we're going to continue our look at culture and organizations and developing a cultural mindset. So culture and cultural diversity play a role in the success of organizations. On an individual basis, 
Learning to interact successfully with many cultures can expand your perspective and can open you up to many opportunities. On an organizational level, being able to manage across cultures is an organizational imperative. Now, the role of culture and cultural diversity in organizations has both to do with individuals understanding more about culture, but also organizations developing ability to manage across cultures. So the key to success in intercultural contact and interaction is cultivating what is called a cultural mindset or a way of thinking and outlook where culture is taken into consideration in deliberations, decisions, and behaviors. For many years, organizations have emphasized the concept of cultural and linguistic competence, a set of behaviors, attitudes, and policies that are integrated to help deal with cross-cultural situations in the organization. In order for organizations, though, to truly become diverse and multicultural, managers must think about culture when they act and not just simply act. So what we're seeing is that you need to learn about different cultures, especially if you're dealing with people from different cultures within your organization and if your organization is dealing with companies, suppliers, etc., developing contracts, partnerships with organizations from other cultures. It's possible to have a cultural mindset that allows you to understand cultural differences and the impact on behavior and to take that knowledge into consideration when interacting with or leading others from another culture and allowing for the development of appropriate skills and competencies. So you'll see there is, um, in developing this cultural mindset, if we look at our little graphic on the slide, you have the self-awareness of culture, so your own self-awareness of your own culture and an awareness of other cultures, including culture in your thinking when you're problem solving. So on the next level, it's your behavior. So what do we do? How do we act based on this knowledge that we have and this awareness we have of culture? And then finally, um, working with others developing intercultural skills, adopting to different cultural lenses, and really being able to apply that knowledge through intercultural skills. So some components of this cultural mindset going off of these three things. Cultural mindset is a way of thinking that allows you to be aware of and open to culture and how it impacts our own and others' thinkings and behaviors. It involves both how one thinks and how one acts. And it begins with attentiveness to your own culture and understanding how your own culture impacts you and your behavior, how it influences the way you perceive the world and what you do. Now, one of the best ways to become very highly aware of your own culture is to put yourself into a strange cultural situation. So once you are in a situation where you're living and working in a, in a culture that is not your own, these things become then very 
clear to you how you are different from others and how your culture has impacted you. Then, besides having an awareness of your own culture and awareness of other cultures, come aware of the role of culture. Awareness of the role of culture is essential because culture is stable and hard to change because some of the assumptions are not fully conscious in our minds. They are quite subconscious and subtle. In addition self to self-awareness, a cultural mindset requires knowing how culture might impact others. It further involves a degree of curiosity and inquisitiveness about how and why other people do what they do, and an appreciation and respect for differences. And it needs to go beyond tolerance, but into the realm of understanding and respecting. Another component of a cultural mindset is the willingness to share your culture and learn from those who are different. So a culturally mindful manager would see themselves as part of the world and using the knowledge they have acquired to improve their decisions and improve their effectiveness in the organization in that multicultural situation, in that multicultural environment. While a cultural mindset is first a way of thinking, how we think influences what we do. So it also becomes a way of acting and behaving. A manager with a cultural mindset is proactive in addressing cultural issues and challenges rather than either not addressing them or only reacting to them. A culturally mindful manager is one who acquires skills and competencies at working with other cultures. And finally, a cultural mindset allows managers to capitalize more on the potential benefits of a multicultural workforce. So let's look a little bit more at this uh, multicultural organization and what it means to, be, to become a multicultural organization. So that means we're looking at the cultural mindset in organizations. So what are the characteristics of that cultural mindset? It allows for a multicultural approach with aims at inclusiveness, social justice, affirmation, mutual respect, and harmony in a pluralistic world or in a world that has lots of different people and cultures in it. The benefits of building a multicultural organization with a cultural mindset go beyond just looking at gender or minority groups. These extend to all employees. Managers play a critical role in encouraging a cultural mindset in organizations through their words and through their actions. And the organizations also can support this through their policies and their climate and their organizational culture. Now, what about changing the culture of an organization? As we said before, culture is pretty permanent and slow to change. So changing the culture within an organization, if you're working in an organization and something's wrong and you sort of can reveal through analysis that there's a cultural problem going on here, you'll find that changing culture is one of the most difficult and lengthy processes that any organization can undertake. Without a cultural change to address informal discriminatory practices and attitudes, however, other improvements are not likely to be effective. By having diverse people in leadership positions, an organization can walk the talk of diversity 
and can demonstrate this commitment to diversity. Another step towards changing culture is providing support groups for various diverse groups. So what we're talking about here is changing the culture of an organization into becoming a multicultural organization. So training and education can help people become aware of their own biases. Uh, they can help them to understand their own and others' cultural point of view and to better accept differences. Many organizational policies, such as those on uh, family leave, can hinder people's chances of advancement. Similarly, traditional performance evaluation criteria, which tend to emphasize stereotypically male and stereotypically Western characteristics that are associated with leadership um, and success, may undermine the ability of people who have other diverse characteristics and skills that are equally valuable to an organization, and it may hinder them, nevertheless, to rising to leadership positions. So finally, successful organizational cultural change requires careful uh, planning, implementation, measurement, and monitoring. Now we want to start looking at the concepts of equality and diversity. So what is the meaning of equality and diversity? One way of thinking about it comes from the Equality and Human Rights Commission. We are committed to the vision of a modern Britain where everyone is treated with dignity and respect, and we all have an equal chance to succeed. Equality and diversity is concerned with unequal and inequitable treatment of some employees irrespective of their ability to perform. Equality itself is seen as being focused on the nature of this disadvantage in terms of the collective categories of gender, ethnicity, disability, and age. Diversity focuses on individual differences and assumes that everyone is different in their own way and that organizations should respond to individual differences. So many countries around the world include groups with different cultural backgrounds. This group diversity is referred to as cultural diversity. Some cultures are, so, sorry, some countries are culturally diverse, such as the United Kingdom, the United States, other countries are less diverse and have a much more homogenous society. To help your organization be effective, you need to understand culture and be able to apply diversity concepts where they are appropriate. So let's look now at some legal considerations around equality and diversity. In Britain, for example, there is a key law put in place called the Equality Act of 2010. This Equality Act aimed to eliminate discrimination, harassment, and victimization to advance, advance equality and opportunity and foster good relations. Now, there are different types of discrimination that we can define and characterize that this Equality Act would be addressing. 
Direct discrimination is where one is less favorable. Two persons are treated differently, but that treatment accorded to one is less favorable than that accorded to the other. Indirect discrimination means a practice which is discriminatory in relation to a relevant protected characteristic. So that would mean with indirect discrimination, person A discriminates against another person B if A applies to B a provision, criterion, or practice which is discriminatory in relation to a relevant protected characteristic of B. The difficulty is that even if an employer treats both white and ethnic minority people the same, minority people may still be advantaged by the provision of that treatment. So discrimination, especially when it comes to indirect discrimination and protected characteristics, is still quite complex, even though it may seem very straightforward. Uh, this also includes discrimination in terms of victimization, harassment, for example, even bullying in the workplace. Positive action um, offers employers the opportunity to give preference in selection decisions to equally qualified members of an underrepresented group. So in the United States, we refer to this as, I think we refer to it as affirmative action. Uh, it's also referred to as positive discrimination and here referred to as positive action. This is meant to be used to encourage people from particular groups to take advantage of opportunities for training and work experience schemes and to encourage them to apply for particular um, employment vacancies. Previous understanding of positive action extended was extended under the Equality Act of 2010. So basically what this means is that when you have people of equal qualifications, both applying, for example, for a job or for a promotion, positive action would mean that if one of those candidates belongs to a traditionally discriminated group or is a member of a group with a protected characteristic, that you would prefer them to the candidate to the other candidate in order to help equal out some of the historical injustice that has been going on in society and has created this systemic disadvantage to those people with protected characteristics. So let's look a little bit further at some of the legal considerations of equality and diversity, just so you have an understanding of what are these protected characteristics. Under EU, EU directives, there are six strands of equality, so six types of characteristics. They are race, gender, ability, sexual orientation, age, and religion or belief. Under the Equality Act in the United Kingdom, the list is a bit longer and includes the following. Not only race, gender, ability, sexual orientation, age, and religion or belief, but also gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnerships, as well as pregnancy, uh, pregnancy issues. And it's interesting to note here that very recently, veganism has been recognized as a protected philosophical belief, ethical veganism. There you go. Talk about culture changing.
So let's have a look further at equality and diversity in a few facts and figures. Here we're going to look a bit more closely at some specific characteristics such as gender and race. In terms of gender, you may have heard the term glass ceiling. So here we'll define what it is and what are some of its characteristics. The glass ceiling refers to a kind of invisible barrier or obstacle that prevents women from moving up to the higher levels of organizational status. Um, it, it came through in studying leadership and women's abilities or women's tendencies to be promoted to higher levels in organizations. As we can see that statistically very few women have some of the highest positions in whether government or uh, politics or organizations or other parts of society. And it started being referred to as the glass ceiling because there was, there were no actual real rules, regulations or anything put in place to say, oh, women can't have that role or women can't achieve that status. Instead, it's an invisible barrier that is present in people's minds due to certain kinds of biases that have established themselves through culture, through socialization, where people tend to reject the idea of women having the ability, the skills uh, to take on these leadership positions and the stereotype that males are meant to have these positions. Some have suggested that men are actually fast-tracked to leadership position through what's called a glass elevator. And a recent review of research suggested that the presence of a glass cliff may also exist, that when a woman does get put into a higher position, they are put there because it is a precarious leadership situation. Successful women are appointed to these positions to give them an opportunity to fail. So they actually are known that there'll be little chance of success and thereby exposing them to another form of discrimination and another form of positivity bias by showing, oh, of course women can't handle these higher positions. Look, she just failed. So stereotypes and discrimination feed into this. Women have been forced to be more, or found to be more cooperative, team-oriented, and more change-oriented. And this is the result of cultural socialization. Uh, women leaders, if they do get to a position, they tend to use a more collaborative style instead of the command and control style that we see in male leaders and that we have seen being traditionally used. Research suggests that bosses' perception of potential conflict between family and work will affect their decision to promote a woman. Uh, as we know, out in society, women are more likely to work part-time in the labor force. And this has largely been attributed to the fact that the expectation, the social and cultural expectations of women is that they should be at home taking care of the children and that they have much more work and family conflict for uh, the workforce. So in this case, we can see, as in some others, that perception seems to play a much bigger role than whether of whether women are, are promoted to higher positions than actual reality. 75% uh, of women in the five are working in, for example, the five lowest paid sectors of society. 
And some people would argue that, well, that's women's choice. Women choose to work in these lower paid sectors. Now, I question that kind of reasoning as to why would people uh, systematically attempt to disadvantage themselves by purposefully and intentionally seeking out low paid work. Let's look a little bit more at women in leadership positions. For example, when women are in leadership positions, they tend to also receive less decision-making power, less authority, less access to highly responsible and challenging assignments than their male counterparts. A series of surveys conducted uh, nearly 50 years ago in 1972 indicated that overall women are unhappier when they were pre- than they were previously, and they get less happy as they age, a finding that is reversed for men. Men tend to get happier as they get older. The primary explanation provided in that study was that women feel rushed and stressed much more than before and more than men, and that they feel drained rather than fulfilled. So let's look at race now. For different racial minorities, uh, the unemployment rate is higher than uh, for these ethnic minority groups than for those classed as white. Minority ethnic groups, um, male employees earn on the average 29% less per week than a white full-time male employee, and ethnic minorities are also employed in lower paid professions, such as restaurants, catering, hospitality, etc. So you can see that these differences, these inequalities, can't necessarily be based on actual genetic uh, determination. It's something about the mindset of society and systemic inequalities that are built into our culture, our attitudes, and our beliefs. Now let's look at this next slide on equality and diversity in facts and figures that breaks down the workforce in terms of religion or belief. Religion and race are sometimes connected, can be connected. The majority of the United Kingdom's ethnic minorities, that is 66% of them according to this figure from 2007, declare themselves as non-Christian. That's a pretty high percentage for a country. In fact, I believe in the United States, something like uh, over 70% of people in the United States identify themselves as Christian. Now, here we've got the breakdown of Christian in England and Wales and Scotland, of no religion, Muslim, Hindu, Sikh, Jewish, Buddhist, another religion, religion not stated in the United Kingdom. Now, these figures that are shown here are contradicting what is what is expressed in the text on the slide. So I think what we would need to do is find some more reliable statistics, a more reliable graphic uh, that's more up to date to understand this a bit better. I recently took a test called the Life of the United Kingdom test. And some of the results that they were quoting is that um, somewhere around 4% of the population in the United Kingdom identifies as Muslim, less than half a percent identified as Jewish or Buddhist, 
and about 1% were identifying as Sikh and about 2% were identifying as Hindu. So these numbers may have changed since this, these figures that we have on our slide here. Let's continue with our look at equality and diversity in facts and figures. Now looking at some thoughts around disability and sexual orientation. According to these statistics from 2013, there are about 5.2 million disabled adults of working age in the United Kingdom. And they make up about 15% of the working population. Right, so that's how many people, disabled people there are in the United Kingdom in general. 43% of disabled women and 50% of disabled men are in unemployment compared to 72% and 86% of those who are not considered to be disabled. Disabled workers are also concentrated in low-skilled, low-status jobs and are more likely to work part-time or be self-employed. So you're starting to see kind of a pattern develop in these groups. Now let's look at sexual orientation. According to this study from 2013, about 5% to 7% of the total UK population declares to be uh, from the LGBT group, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. There is no legislation to protect gays and lesbians from discrimination, or there was no until the uh, employee equality regulations of 2003. 24% of lesbian, gay, and bisexual members of society in the United Kingdom have avoided certain jobs, according to this study by Stonewall. They've avoided certain types of careers and employment uh, for fear of discrimination. So that's the sexual orientation part of it. Now we can look at age and some other factors like generational diversity. Older people, particularly women, are overrepresented in low pay, low status forms of employment. Older people have difficulty finding employment with employers considering people too old at the age of 50 and black workers are too old already at the age of 40. So according to this study, age discrimination costs the United Kingdom up to 31, is that right? 31 billion a year. Generational diversity is characterized by the following. Mid-career workers find themselves in a career bottleneck in which too many people are competing for too few positions. This is especially true when organizations are starting to flatten their hierarchies and creating fewer positions where you can um, be promoted. Younger workers uh, grew up with technology and therefore may have some skill advantages over other generations. So managers should be especially attentive to quickly incorporating them into the organization. In some of the generational challenges that organizations face have to do with 
uh, these generations clashing in the workplace, and this can be disruptive. And so leaders and managers need to understand these generational differences and be able to communicate and manage them accordingly. So there are differences according to one's place in the workforce in terms of hierarchies, respect, status, position. Many workers expect to level off their contributions nearing retirement through part-time work and job sharing. On the other hand, these workers still have a great deal of knowledge and capacity to learn new things. <coughs> Excuse me. Consequently, managers interested in maintaining a highly productive workforce will seek to engage these workers and implement flexible strategies through which they can stay engaged and eventually transition into retirement. Managers wishing to effectively engage this group must find ways to rekindle their passion for work and provide them with opportunities for personal and professional development that are both satisfying and indeed exciting. Now, younger workers, as part of this generational clash, who've grown up with technology, they constitute a far more diverse demographic. So managers wishing to connect this with this group should be especially attentive to them and quickly incorporate them into the organization by providing them with flexible work assignments, extensive learning opportunities, and by maintaining contact with employees who leave but may someday return. So managing different generations, one of the implications for managers is how to motivate employees from each generational group. As a manager, you need to take into account the generations that are involved in your organizations. Um, millennials may have been given the floor to express their opinions. Um, and it shouldn't surprise employers that millennials are going to show up on the job expecting to have a voice. So giving orders to millennials is kind of out. Candid conversations and give and take negotiations are considered in. So that is the end of this segment on equality and diversity. In the next segment, we will look a little bit more at the benefits of diversity in the workplace. So now we will finish off our unit on equality and diversity, looking at some of the advantages and benefits of diversity in the workplace. Diverse groups contribute to higher creativity, increased flexibility, and better problem solving, especially for complex problems. So research indicates that there are quite a few benefits for diverse populations for, for trying to achieve diversity in work groups. Diverse organizations, if managed well, can take advantage of different markets and opportunities that they would otherwise miss out on if they weren't taking a diversity and multicultural approach. Diverse perspectives have been found to be key when facing complex situations. So having a diversity of opinions, a diversity of viewpoints, 
can help organizations and teams and groups illuminate complex situations and complex problems from a variety of ways and lead towards better problem solving. Diversity can also be particularly helpful when groups are facing challenging ethical decisions, again, for some of the same reasons. Now, there are a lot of challenges associated with managing a diverse workplace. As you can imagine, when you have people with different values and different perspectives, there's going to be a certain level of conflict involved. Members of groups with similar backgrounds and orientations can achieve high cohesion fairly quickly. If you remember when we looked at groups and teams and they go through the forming, norming, storming, and performing uh, process uh, and achieve cohesion, um, these types of groups where they have a similar background will like each other more and can often reach decisions more quickly. But this can also lead to the problem of group think, if you remember. Research in psychology indicates that we get along more readily with people who are similar to us. So the old adage of birds of a feather flock together does hold true, but opposites also can attract. And even though diversity can pose a challenge, as stated previously, if it is managed well, you can reap many benefits from diversity in your groups, your teams, and your organizations. So let's have a look at some of the differences in equal opportunities approaches and managing of diversity approaches. So continuing on with our idea of equality and diversity in the organization. So you'll see in this little chart here, we've got a list of aspects such as purpose, the case argued, where the responsibility lies, the benefits employees, the focus on management activity, and the remedies, and applying those to these two different approaches, the equal opportunities approach and the managing diversity approach. So the purpose of an equal opportunities approach is to reduce discrimination, whereas the purpose of a managing diversity approach is to use employee potential to maximize the advantage. Uh, what is the case argued for equal opportunities? Basically, the case for equal opportunities is to say that giving equal opportunity, providing equal opportunities is something that is moral and ethical. So it's the right thing to do. Whereas the managing diversity approach argues the case that the business case is improved and the profitability is improved by managing diversity. Now, whose responsibility is then equality and diversity in the equal opportunities approach? This is seen to lie with the human resources department, whereas in the managing diversity approach, the responsibility is distributed more amongst all of the managers. And Actually, you could see a managing diversity approach as being distributed among all members of the organization, but the responsibility ultimately will lie with the managers. Now, for equal opportunities approach, the focus in the management activity is around recruitment. So when you're providing equal opportunities, 
you would be giving those equal opportunities at the recruitment stage, potentially also at the promotion stage. Uh, decisions around training and development would also be impacted by that equal opportunities approach. Now, the managing diversity approach, the focus uh, in the managing act management activity is on the managing of the diversity and the whole uh, dynamics associated with diversity in and of themselves. In the equal opportunities approach, what is seen as the best remedy for a lack of equal opportunity is changing the system and its practices. Whereas in the managing diversity approach, the remedy for a culture that doesn't have diversity is to change the culture. So you can see there are a couple of differences in these two viewpoints as to equal opportunities versus managing diversity in an organization. The equal opportunities approach seeks to influence behavior through legislation so that discrimination is prevented. It concentrates on the equality of opportunity rather than the equality of outcome that is found in more radical approaches. The equal opportunities approach seeks to formalize procedures so that relevant job-based criteria are used rather than irrelevant assumptions. The rationale is to provide a level playing field on which everybody can compete on equal terms. Now there are some problems with this approach, although it sounds good in theory. The equal opportunities approach assumes that equal outcomes will be achieved if fair procedures are used and monitored. However, it has not been borne out in practice. So according to Torrington et al. in 2010, um, we can't necessarily prove a causal link. Equal opportunities is considered simplistic as well these days and be attempting to treat symptoms rather than to go to the core of the problem of unfair discrimination. There's also a general lack of support within organizations towards this approach, partly due to the equality objectives not being linked to business objectives. Now, let's look at the managing and diversity approach. The management of diversity approach concentrates on individuals rather than groups and includes the improvement of opportunities for all individuals and not just in minority groups. The challenge of meeting the needs of a culturally diverse workforce and of sensitizing workers and managers to differences associated with gender, race, age, nationality, in attempt to maximize the potential productivity of all employees. Managing diversity is based on economic and business case for recognizing and valuing difference rather than a moral case for treating people equally. So the problems, though, with the managing diversity approach are, for example, as Kirkton and Green pointed out, that only a small number of organizations are ever quoted as managing diversity exemplars. Even organizations which claim to be managing diversity do not appear to have a more diverse workforce than others, and neither have they employed more minority groups over the past five years. Whether diversity management, which originated in the United States, will travel effectively to the UK or to other cultures is still left to be seen. So we want to now turn to some of the implications of diversity and managing diversity and equality in organizations. 
what are some of the implications that we can that we can uh, describe creating a culture of respect and dignity for all employees through effective implementation of a well-designed policies and procedures is one of the actions that should be focused on for organizations attempting to achieve diversity and to manage equality and diversity. Another action that should be focused on is fostering respect to realize different perspectives matter and that diversity is everyone's responsibility. Another action that you should focus on in your organization to achieve this is assigning senior level responsibilities for driving diversity issues and allocating appropriate resources to drive that change. Thinking inclusively when designing diversity policies and procedures to ensure they are transparent, fair, and address different needs is another important action to be taken. Continually checking that policies and practice are bias-free and fair and are working across the organization is another thing to focus on for your organization. And finally, actions that you can carry out would also include failure to carry out on policy and practice reviews, which would undermine their effectiveness. So you need to focus on making sure you carry out reviews and ensure that things are being implemented effectively. So from this point of view, cultural diversity is not an option or a choice. From a business case perspective, as well as from a moral and ethical perspective, it's a reality that must be dealt with in today's global world. Some organizations have successfully embraced diversity and made it the core of their organization. Research has indicated that diverse membership in groups contributes to higher creativity, to increased flexibility, and better problem solving, especially for complex problems. Diverse organizations, if managed well, can take advantage of markets and opportunities that they would otherwise miss out on. Diversity can also pose some challenges and conflict among members in the organization but conflict, again, is something that can be positive and can be managed. Members of group with similar backgrounds and orientations may achieve higher cohesion, but they may also be prone to groupthink. And when they reach decisions quickly, those decisions might not be the best decisions they could have made if they had had a more diverse group. Research in psychology indicates that we get along better with people who are similar to us. But at the same time, how often are we going to only be dealing with people who are similar to us? And is that really the world we want to create? We'll always have to deal with people who have different opinions, and so it's good to exercise these skills uh, in the workplace as well. We can learn so much from people with different perspectives and different ideas. Different perspectives have been found to be key when facing complex situations. And diversity can also be particularly helpful when groups are facing challenging, complex decisions as well as challenging ethical decisions. So the recommendations are there to increase diversity in organizations and especially to increase diversity in the leadership of public and business organizations.
So that is it for our our unit. That's the end for equality and diversity. This unit uh, in our people and business module and the next unit we'll be looking at will be around reflection.